Hello, this is the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. I know we've had an episode already this week, but there are just too many people we want to get on, and too many stories, and big ideas, and new books to talk about. So, for the next month at least, we'll be interspersing the big one-hour interviews at the start of the week with shorter podcasts around half that length. To kick us off, we have a blood-curdling, bizarre, and sometimes fantastical tale that touches upon big philosophical questions about bodies, identity, and why we are who we are. Dr. Paul Craddock is a historian of medicine whose debut book, Spare Parts, tells the story of transplants, from the first skin grafts in India through to the medical technologies of the near future. He joined me to share some of the highlights. Paul, your new history of medical transplants begins in a gleaming modern-day operating theatre, but quickly transports the reader back through the centuries to some of the most bizarre episodes in medical history. What drew you into this field of research? My inspiration for looking at the subject of transplants comes from an individual image, and that's an image of a student called Jennifer Sutton. And I came across this at a time, it must have been 2008, 2009, something like that, uh, when I was casting around for something to write a PhD about. Uh, Because I knew I wanted to do something intellectual. I knew it had to be something historical. And I just really didn't know what I was going to do. But then I came across this photograph. And it was a photograph of a student who was looking at her own heart in a museum case. She'd had a transplant just a few weeks before this, and she'd donated that heart to the Welcome Collection. So I looked at this image of this woman staring at her own heart, and quite a few things came up for me. The first thing was, well, it was it was a kind of an implicit appreciation of uh, medical services, science, um, and the transplant service in particular, because without those services, she wouldn't be alive. But it was also a very intimate photograph. It was a photograph of her staring at her own heart. You can't get much more intimate than that. And also the fact she was, of course, she had the heart of somebody else inside of her. So there was that relationship there as well. And the complexity of these sets of relationships and the sheer spine tinglingness of it sort of brought up for me quite a few uh, fundamental questions that we all ask ourselves at some point, you know, about our own identities. What does it mean to have an identity? What does it mean to have a body? Uh, what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be alive? I mean, these are massive, massive questions. And I, and I wanted to know more about the procedure that could make this seemingly impossible situation come to be. And so I started to look into it and Like anybody researching transplant surgery, I started with what I thought I knew, which was um, the first heart transplant. And then after that, of course, it's just a continuing progression. That's how it's told. Uh, But looking back at this photograph of Jennifer Sutton and thinking about not the technical skill, not the surgical accomplishments, but the, I suppose, the way that making transactions between bodies influences how you think 
about the big questions. And I, I have an answer to those big questions, obviously, but I started by thinking about transplant as a way to possibly address them. As soon as I stopped thinking about organ transplants and I started to think about in terms of transactions between bodies, it went back thousands of years. Transplants took place in myths for many centuries before medical science began to catch up. And these in turn came to influence the way that people viewed and understood actual medical transplants when they did begin taking place. Will you share some of your favourite myths of transplants with us? So my favourite um, transplant myth was one written by the Chinese writer, well, it was one committed to paper by the Chinese writer Pu Songling in 1680. And it recorded the story of a judge, Judge Lu. And Judge Lu became friends with a very brave but stupid man called Zhu Ertan. And one of one day, the friends of this Zhu Ertan convinced convinced him to go and steal the likeness of this underworld judge, Judge Lu. And he did. He got up, he got he got drunk, sorry, he tottered off to the temple and he came back with the judge's full size image. And before returning it, the drunken zoo should slurred an invitation to this mythical judge and, and, and asked him to come for a drink, basically. And the judge did. He came around and he started drink they started drinking together, became drinking buddies. And one after their friendship had blossomed, the judge thought, well, this man's very nice, but he's a bit stupid. Uh, so I'll swap his heart out. So he found a heart in the underworld and he brought it back and he performed a heart transplant while his friend was asleep. And then he was no, it just sort of ends immediately with, with the words, he was no longer stupid and he became a great writer. It doesn't end there though. This um, now great writer said, well, you've solved my problem, but my wife's ugly uh, could you go and find her a face, a new head? And he said, yeah, OK, I'll, I'll do that. And he went back to the underworld, found a head and attached it. But his wife didn't change because the personality was held in the heart, not not the head. So, yeah, that's, my, that's probably my favourite, favourite myth. What was the first form of human transplant for which we have historical evidence? First form of human transplant would have been a skin graft. And a skin graft is it's actually one of the oldest surgical procedures. And it's mentioned in the Sushruta Samhita, which is uh, an ancient Indian surgical text. And actually, that was written down in the 6th century, but it was a record of procedures that were already considered traditional at that point. So it's, you know, it's likely much, much older than that. It disappears from... Transplanted completely, actually, apart from mythological examples, seems to disappear from the medical literature for centuries. And it emerges again, still as a skin graft, in the, technically, in the 1460s, I think that's when you start getting references to families of Italian surgeons who have somehow been keeping this skin grafting technique a secret. And it's a very, very similar technique to the ancient Indian one. And basically it involves cutting a flap of skin from the forehead and forming it into a nose and performing a skin graft with it. 
But it's, it's taking the skin from the arm instead in the Italian version. There's no indication that they're linked. Both of those procedures seem to have origins in horticulture. So the procedure for grafting plants, you know, grafting apple trees, pear trees to increase their yield, etc., sticking new branches on, on trees and whatnot, it's pretty much the same operation. So when skin grafts emerged first in ancient India, they were one of the most complex procedures in, in the Sushruta Samhita and one of the most prestigious. So it says at the end of a description of the graft, if you can master the skin graft, then you're good enough to treat a king. Once you get to the Italian skin grafts in the 16th century, then it's a peasant's operation. It's performed only by these secretive families of surgeons and they don't tell anybody the technique. They just perform it on people who, who pay them. But then it was in 1549 that a renegade surgeon called Leonardo Fioravanti came onto the scene and he steals this ancient technique of skin grafting. He tricks the Vianio family, he tricks them into letting him watch one of their procedures. He pretends to be squeamish and he pretends not to like blood. And he, he says his family's lost, his, his uh, relatives lost his nose fighting. Um, and he wants to see how he would go about getting it replaced. We should just say at this point in the story, losing your nose was an, a common problem. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was a common problem. Yes, you could lose it in a multitude of ways, dueling, as punishment, you know, sabre wound, or even syphilis, you know, lots of ways you could lose your nose. So these families would have had quite a bit of business, I should imagine. And the, the alternative was, was a nose mask. And they just, I mean, you look, if you just look them up and you can, you just, they just look like party masks you get in a, a child's party bag. They really do, even the, uh, the good ones. Um, even the, in fact, even the ones that are made out of things like gold look terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd read so it actually it was quite it would have been quite an attractive prospect to get a new nose um <laughs> made from your own skin because your forehead or your arm would heal and you'd you'd have something quite convincing actually by all accounts so fioravanti is watching this operation and making notes he's making notes through fioravanti is watching this operation and making notes what looking through his splayed fingers at what's going on and then he decides to practice it himself so it was a year later and he's in uh, he's on the coast of what would be tunisia and he's walking with a spanish friend of his uh, and spain and the ottoman empire are not on very good terms let's say <laughs> at this point and one of the ottoman soldiers lashed out with his blade and cut the nose off fioravanti's friend and this nose dropped into the sand and it rolled around. And Fioravanti got a brainwave and he thought, I'll, I'll pick it up. And if, in fact, if you read the English translation of it, it just says the words, I pissed on it. And by pissing on it, he washed the sand away. Then he stuck the nose onto his friend's face and then bound it there. And then a few weeks later, undid the bandages and it was attached. And he said, if you don't believe me, my friend's still alive, you can ask him. Hello, it's Vass here. 
One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's move on from skin grafts to talk about blood. Most of the world's cultures have believed in a magical link between life and blood at some point in their history. In Greek mythology, to take one example, we have the story of Jason and Medea. Yes, Jason and Medea. A lot of people will know this story because it's basically the story of Jason and the Argonauts, which has a very nice filmic adaptation. Basically, the story is that Jason, who is the leader of the Minions, he set sail up the river Phasis to look for this golden fleece. And when he got uh, to his destination, the king said, yep, you can have this golden fleece, but you have to do a few things first. Um, You have to, here are uh, some fire-breathing bowls. If you can yoke them and plough this field, that's your first task. Then plant these dragon's teeth into the field, and then just defeat the army that pops up out of the ground. And then you can steal the fleece from under the nose of that dragon. And by the way, that dragon has never slept before. And while while the king was delivering these instructions to Jason, the king's daughter, Medea, fell in love with Jason and decided that she would use her magic to help him in these tasks. So she cast some spells and the fire-breathing bowls the fire doesn't touch Jason. It, it just sort of glances off him. So he succeeds in that first task. And then she sends this sleepless dragon to sleep. So he just walks over and, and claims the fleece. Uh, and then he, he, he goes back to Thessaly with the fleece and with Medea, who's his new wife. Now, when he and his men get back, there's a sort of a party in the street and everybody's there. All the men's fathers are there, apart from Jason's own. And that's because Jason's father is was very, very old and he was too weak uh, to make it out. And Jason was quite upset about this. And he said to his new wife, look, you, you've cast some spells to help me, you know, with that dragon. Do you think you can take some of my life and give it to my father? She didn't want to do this, but she said, I'll, I'll, I'll cast a spell anyway and I'll, I'll, I'll make him younger using other means. And she mixes up this potion and Jason's father's body is brought out and she performs this ritual, which sort of culminates at a point where she slits his throat. And some versions of the story, in some versions of that story, she then mixes the potion with the blood that's trickling down Jason's father's throat and then retransfuses it. And some versions he drinks it. But whatever actually happened, <laughs> he became young again. He started 
to lose his grey hair and it became black. He started to straighten, his stoop disappeared and he he just became a young man again. And we think about this as a myth, of course, and it is. But some some of the scientists and doctors in the 16th, sorry, 17th century thought about it as an opportunity. <laughs> and they actually decided that it might be a good idea to start taking blood from one creature and injecting it into another. So the first person to try this was a, a chap called Francis Potter. And he didn't he didn't do very well actually. He 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 used a bladder and I think it was a a wind I think it, the the description was of a windpipe of a small animal, but wasn't specific. So he cobbled together these kind of mechanical conduits, these mechanical equivalents to to blood um, vessels and things, to try to transfuse hen's blood. And it didn't really work. It didn't really work. It did start to work, though, when the Royal Society was formed, or well, just before the Royal Society formed, actually. And one of the scientists at the heart of this, these blood transfusion experiments, was Christopher Wren, who we know more for you know, his work on, on St. Paul's Cathedral. But before he was an architect, he was interested in the body. And he worked with Robert Boyle and John Wilkins and uh, developed ways to inject things into bloodstreams. So they started with things like um, alcohol and drugs. So they'd shoot up a dog with some um, opium or something and they'd notice that the dog gets high very, very quickly. Higher than it would if it was taking the opium orally and same thing happened if they if you fed the dogs alcohol they'd get drunk quicker so there was there's something sort of in this uh, in this idea that you could directly put things inside of a creature and, and expect a result and one scientist called Richard Lower he decided what he'd do is he'd try to feed a dog by injecting milk into its bloodstream. Of course, you can imagine what happened. The milk curdled and the poor dog just had an agonising death. So if milk has this reaction to blood and it curdles, Lower thought, what if I just take the blood directly? Because, you know, when you digest food, when you digest the milk, it, it ends up in your bloodstream. <laughs> so what if you just take the blood and you inject that? And that's where the idea uh, the workable idea of blood transfusion comes from. And it turned out to be easier to connect two circulatory systems together than it was to take blood into a syringe and uh, move it that way. So that's where the first um, idea about blood transfusion came from. Where it gets, I want to say where it gets weird, as if it's not weird enough, is when the donor becomes something like a sheep, and the recipient becomes a human. Following this idea that blood can make you younger if it's from a young um, animal. Let's skip forward a few centuries. How do modern day scientific blood transfusions get started? They start at the beginning of the 19th century. And they get started when a scientist in Barbados, the son of a sugar plantation owner, 
did his dissertation on blood transfusion and he decided <laughs> that it would be sensible for human bodies to accept human blood. And one of the reasons previous transfusions didn't work might be because it was lamb's blood. <laughs> and this was picked up by a midwife called James Blundell, or Blundell, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And he'd, he'd just, he'd, he'd noticed that a lot of his patients would hemorrhage giving birth and he'd have to, he'd have to just tragically watch them die. And he recognised a phrase that, that this Barbados uh, scientist used. He said that he would notice these women trembling on the brink of the grave. And he thought, well, I'll give blood transfusion a try because, you know, none of these women are surviving. So I might as well try it. So he tried using the um, blood of their husbands, transfusing that. And it was hit and miss. Um, you know, there was some happenstance compatibility sometimes and, and a few lives were saved. So it was certainly worth doing. And he invented different machines to to stop the clotting problem, which has, has always played anybody whenever they tried to uh, mess with blood. And one of them was called the impeller. And that basically worked by a syringe and you'd, you'd pull the blood from the husband into this machine. The idea was to keep it moving. So the life force was kept, well, so it was kept alive. So the life force was kept viable. Um, so you pull it into the device, you turn a stopcock and then keep it flowing, pushing it into the woman. And he invented a second one called the gravitator. And both of them sound like they could be in a torture chamber, the impeller and the gravitator. But the gravitator did the same thing. It just worked with with gravity. So you'd the husband would bleed into a cup and that would drop uh, through uh, a simple mechanism and make its way into the woman's body. And that actually, those moments were the first time that transplant surgery was ever specifically designed to save lives. And that's something we take for granted now. But there's a, such a long history behind that where transplant had nothing really to do with saving lives. It was to do with either changing someone's personality, making money, uh, even transforming someone into another being. <laughs> but now, from this point on, transplant surgery comes to be mainly about saving lives. I say mainly because at the start of the 20th century, you had those <laughs> goat testicle transplants, which um, certainly weren't about saving lives, but mainly it was. One of the unsung heroes of the story of blood transfusions is Marie-Anne Leroudier. Who was she and how did she contribute to medical science? Marie-Anne Leroudier, she, this is actually my, the bit I'm proudest of, actually. Because when you when you think about transplant, you, your mind goes to the organs and the 60s and macho men doing very manly things better than everybody else. And there are a few reasons for that. One of them is that these stories emerged in the, in the, in the post-war era when people really liked these stories of, of heroic surgeons. They seemed to get a lot of traction culturally at that point. Uh, but also in the, at that time, hospitals and individual doctors started to get savvy about the media and started to curate their own images. So you get a lot of surgeons talking about how brilliant they are. And that's not really stopped, I don't think. But we see this story of transplant through that lens. But when I was reading about where 
organ transplants originated and basically that's with the with two advances that came about at the turn of the 20th century blood typing for not the animal blood typing but one we're familiar with these days and a process called vascular anastomosis which is it, it just means sewing together blood vessels so basically you can sew organs into bodies at this point now when i was reading about alexi Carell, who was the man who perfected the technique to sew blood vessels together I noticed that I kept coming across references to a seamstress who he saw in Lyon or who he he was inspired by. And one of them said he was taught by a seamstress. She was called Marianne Leroudier. And this struck me as quite odd because at that time, if you were a surgeon, surgery wasn't very delicate at that time. It was called the butchering art, wasn't it? 19th century so it's very, very, I was going to say cut and dry, but maybe that's not right. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> right not dry. <laughs> cut, cut and wet. Um, so it, surgery at that time was a, was a very, very brutal and unsophisticated profession, uh, relatively unsophisticated. Of course, it was less sophisticated even further back. Uh, so if you were a surgeon and you wanted to learn to sew, which you had to do, you generally go to your mother or your wife or your sister, you know, some kind of domestic woman who knew how to sew because most women did to a a very high standard, actually, uh, back then. But Carell went to Marianne Leroudier. Now, have you, if you've ever seen Marianne Leroudier's work, it's exquisite. The Vatican owns some of it. She won medals in in the major uh, competitions Uh, around the world. She did the gold lace on the opera curtains of a Paris opera house. She's a very, you know, she's top of her profession. And I thought it a bit weird that that a surgeon would need to go to someone like that. So the question that came up was, what could she have possibly have taught him that he couldn't have got from somewhere else? And so I actually did a a research project and I have peer-reviewed um, articles out now on on this, where I worked with an embroiderer and we looked at the different ways that her technique made it into surgery. So it's things like managing, managing where the thread goes so that it, it doesn't create clots, it doesn't tear the vessel. Um, so we, we basically looked at her collection of stuff and, and his technique and we compared them and, and, and sort of... Um, we suggested that it might be the case that a lot of the more complicated components of his technique come from her practice. Now, when when Leroudier is mentioned in Carell's biographies, it's generally as a one-line throwaway statement. You know, he was taught by this seamstress. And the subtext behind that was that he was so good that he needed, he needed the best an ordinary woman wouldn't wouldn't have done, but actually, what what I think is that we should be valuing the expertise of this particular woman and looking at more detail in what she contributed to the knowledge that he took and he out of which he fashioned this technique. So I think we should be recognizing her and her embroidery ex- expertise and the role that played at the beginning of organ transplants. And I think that's a much 
I think it's a much more modern take on the birth of organ transplants than, you know, we have all these men doing fantastic manly things. (laughs) One of the more outrageous revelations in this book is the practice in England of transplanting teeth. Can you tell us about that? In the 18th century, you had an industrial revolution and a consumer revolution, which would allow you to buy things. And one of those things happened to be human body parts. One of the things that would plague the middle classes who could afford things like sugar and sweetmeats was bad teeth. And it would be incredibly painful to to have to get them removed. (laughs) But you could have a new tooth installed. But that tooth would have to come from a healthy person. And where do you get a stock of healthy adult teeth? You get it from poor children. So a situation emerged where dentists would be the middleman in quite an evil transaction, buying the healthy teeth, newly erupted adult teeth from children and transplanting them into wealthy mouths so they could retain their smile after destroying their own teeth. It's kind of an 18th century analogue to, you know, the, the organ trafficking that plagues our society today, especially in poorer parts of the world. The last time I've heard of it actually being performed was the 1830s in Buffalo in upstate New York. But it was effectively abandoned by the beginning of the 19th century, and not because it was anything to do with taking advantage of poor children, but because some of the recipients started to get syphilis and others started to die. What does the future hold for transplant surgery? The future the future is spinach, I would say. And what, I'm referring to a particular experiment um, in Worcester Polytechnic Institute. Uh, now, actually, the, the scientists are at, at Harvard, uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. But... One of the experiments I found most exciting in recent years was the decellularization of spinach leaves that are then implanted with or populated with human heart cells. So basically you put spinach leaf into a detergent and it dissolves away all of the plant matter and you're left with a a scaffold, a collagen scaffold, and then you can populate that with with human heart cells. And and if you search spinach leaf on the internet, those words exactly, you'll see a picture of it. Or just get the book, actually, it's in there as well. (laughs) And that's so exciting because if you can create heart tissue out of your your own cells, then you don't have any issue with rejection. And you see that it's, it's really, it's really something that we're looking to develop when it comes to 3D printing. But 3D printing, it, it just isn't good enough yet for those tiny capillaries. Um, so you use a structure that's already, um, in nature and you take away its, its cells, um, and you repopulate it with, with the patients and then you can transplant that. So it can be used, for instance, to plug a hole in the heart. Um, It's not found a clinical application yet, I I don't believe, but I don't think it's far off. And that's, in fact, that's, that's exciting to me for many reasons. But, but as far as spare parts goes, it's a kind of an arc, isn't it? Because we started off by talking about skin grafting and how that is a horticultural technique. It's just a transposition of a horticultural technique to, to humans. 
Well, there's a kind of nice poetry in using a spinach leaf to plug a hole in the heart, I think. Paul Craddock, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Beth. This week's podcast starred Paul Craddock and was presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. Paul's book, Spare Parts, is out now. The show is produced by myself and Dana Outcult, and the editor is John Doughty. If you're a fan of history or just great storytelling, then check out our episodes with the public historian Greg Jenner, Simon Sharma, historical novelist Maggie O'Farrell, and more in the archive. Until next time, thanks for listening.